cr101radio.com, podcasts, and more. All right, so, um, what is this, our fourth apologetics class, I think? Um, and so last time we talked about, at the, or the last section that we talked about was the AIP, remember this? Arbitrariness, inconsistencies, and preconditions of intelligibility, remember that? Um, this is, if you recall, this is us going into actually doing apologetics. You're looking for these things in your opponent's worldview, and you're avoiding them in your own. Uh, as as you get more consistent, you want to be as consistent as you as you possibly can, and have reasons for what you believe. And um, would you guys, real quick, just define for us arbitrariness to start with? Arbitrariness, which I often get confused with ambiguity. Yes. Um, is when like you don't really have a reason for your belief. Right. So not having a good reason for what you believe, that's arbitrariness. What is ambiguity though? What's the difference? Ambiguity is when you're not being clear about what you're trying to communicate. Yeah, right. So there's something unclear, um, and that can be a cause for misunderstanding and fallacies and things like that. All right, so arbitrariness is not having a good reason. What's inconsistencies? What's that about? It's when, like, sometimes you have, like, some of your points are conflicting. Yes. It's not just, like, in order in line. Right, so when, you're, when your own beliefs conflict with yourself, so you have self-contradictory things, where, where you're, what you say you believe doesn't really fit with other areas of your belief, and there's a bunch of different ways that you can be inconsistent. You can be inconsistent in um, how you act versus what you claim to believe, right? So the person who says, well, there's, there's no such thing as logic, but then engages in, arg- in an argument, right? It doesn't make sense because when he's arguing, he's using logic. The very thing he claims he doesn't believe in, well, he does believe in. Or the person who says, well, there's no such thing as right and wrong, there's no ethics, but then they get mad about things that people do. Well, that's showing that they disapprove of what people are doing and they say it's not good, which is ethics, right? So those are some inconsistencies that people may hold. So we talked about those. We're looking for that in our, in our discussions with people. We're looking, okay, when they're saying stuff that they believe, are they, are they giving reasons? If not, we want to ask, ask them for reasons. And the, are their reasons consistent? Okay, because if they're not, if they have no reason for what they believe, it's irrational. Why? Why is arbitrariness irrational? Because they believe just because like, there's not a reason. So they have no reason for it. it, it is, why is it irrational not to have a reason? Because there's really no reason to believe it, I guess. <laughs> right. It sounds kind of... And the, the thing is, it's, this is very basic, but they have no reason. It's unreasonable. Right? Um, or they have no rationale for what they believe, right? It's irrational. Right? It lacks a rationale. This is the whole point. If you're, if you're saying arbitrariness is okay, then you've abandoned the need for an argument at all. So, if so what if somebody says, and you're debating them, they say, you know what, I'm allowed to be arbitrary. How can you respond to that? argue with someone who is like arbitrary and this is fine because then it's like well I know what you're saying but there is a way 
to deal with that. Because that's, that's bogus, right? Yeah. Can you think about it? Remember the fallacy of a double standard? Special pleading? Okay. If they're allowed to be arbitrary, well, then so can I, right? If arbitrariness is okay. And if arbitrariness is okay, then the Christian worldview is true. Just because. I win the debate. And they'll say, wait a second. No, 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 no. You have to have reasons for what you believe. They, oh, so arbitrariness is not okay. Right? So arbitrariness, nobody, they, don't, they only like it for themselves, right? But that's a double standard if they won't let you do it as well. If, if you say, okay, fine, then I, I win. Because I say so. I don't have to give any reasons whatsoever for what I believe. I just won the debate. They wouldn't accept that. So that's just reducing that position to absurdity, saying, okay, you don't really believe arbitrariness is okay. All right, and then inconsistencies, you're just pointing out the way that they make, make mistakes in their reasoning and how they commit fallacies. All right, now the preconditions of intelligibility, remember we talked about that and we're going to continue that today. We talked about two preconditions of intelligibility, but before we review that, what are, what's preconditions for intelligibility or what is the preconditions for knowledge? They're the same thing. What, what does that mean? Preconditions of knowledge for us, for like Christians? Well, for knowledge for anybody, because there's things that have to be there in order for knowledge to be possible. I just answered the question, didn't I? That's what the preconditions for knowledge are, the things that are necessary for knowledge to be possible. Okay? So we'll talk about, let's review them. We talked about universal objective ethics, right? When people make... Um, People claim to know something is right and wrong, right? Every person believes something's right and wrong, all right? And they interact in this world with uh, ethical, um, you know, beliefs. So that's one of the, one of the preconditions for knowledge. Um, the other one we talked about was uniformity of nature. Remember that? How do we know that nature will function in a law-like way, right? Everybody believes it does, right? In fact, if it didn't, then you couldn't know anything. Right? Because remember, if, if nature doesn't function in a law-like way, then what you've experienced in the past, well, it doesn't help you with anything in the future. So like I said, if you put your hand on the flame in the past, well, it doesn't really teach you anything about what will happen if you put your hand on the, if you put your hand on the flame in the future, if nature's not uniform. But yet, we all know that it is. We all believe that it is. Okay. Likewise, everybody believes that something is right and wrong, ethically speaking. Okay, so everybody believes these things, and they interact in the world with these, you know, these presuppositions. The question is, can they justify these things in their worldview? Can they give a reason for these things in their worldview? Or that's the question we're asking. We're asking that epistemological question. How do you know that this is right or wrong? Right, so let's talk about that for a minute. With ethics, what, what, what might we ask somebody? We're trying to challenge them to give a reason for what they believe. I know last week we gave the example of school shootings. Like, why do you believe that's wrong? So why do you believe that's wrong? Right, and we went through a bunch of different ways that I think we did an atheist might answer that. Um, that's asking the question, can you give a reason for your belief in this particular ethical thing, right? 
And if not, what are they? They're being arbitrary. So you're, when you're challenging them on the preconditions for knowledge, you're still using that A and I at the same time, arbitrariness and inconsistency. You're looking out for it. Okay, you're asking them, how do you know it's wrong? Or why do you believe it's wrong? And if they can't give an answer that is relevant, bring arbitrary. Or they might give an answer that's inconsistent. Right? We, um, we talked about, well, somebody says, um, well, it's wrong because the government says it's wrong. Or it's illegal, so therefore it's wrong. And you ask the question, okay, are you saying that the only things that are wrong are the things that are illegal? Uh, unlikely, right? And then there's other questions of, well, is the government always right? Unlikely that they're going to agree to that as well. What about when the government's changed its mind? Who, which, which government was right when the U.S. government was okay with you know, slavery and then it's not? How do you know? Same government, different time period. How do you know which one's right? Right. So it's not a good standard. It's inconsistent for them to appeal to that. Okay. Then we talked about uniformity in nature, right? Which is um, that nature functions in a law-like way. That's the laws of nature. Um, that the future will resemble the past. You know, for example, gravity. Our experience of gravity in the past is relevant to what we expect to see in the future. All of you all are, all of you are presupposing uniformity of nature right now without even thinking about it, right? You're presupposing gravity without thinking about it. You're presupposing laws of physics and chemistry <coughs> that the chairs are sitting on will continue to be chairs, et cetera, from one second to the next. All of that's the uniformity of nature. Everybody believes in it. The question is, how do you know that nature will be uh, in the future will be like it has been in the past. What's the answer that people give? Like other people? Mm -hmm. Normally it's like, well, because we've observed it in the past and it's consistent through now, so it should be consistent in the future. Right, so what's the problem with that answer? Something can change. There's no guarantee that it's consistent in the future. Well, why not? What's the error in the reasoning? That it's big, arbitrary. Yeah, it begs the question, right? If the, if, the, if the question is, how do you know that nature will be uniform in the future? And the answer is because nature is always uniform. Well, okay, that's the very question we're asking you. How do you know it will be uniform? And can't you say just because it is, right? How do you know it will be uniform in the future as it has been in the past? And you can't say because it's always uniform in the future as it has been in the past. The very same, the premise and the conclusion are the same. So that begs the question. As remember, we looked at the atheist, really the agnostic Bertrand Russell, who said that very thing. He said, yeah, that's not a good answer. It begs the question. And he says, we don't know why. It's in us that we believe in the uniformity of nature, but we don't know why. That's a pretty big admission on his part, and one that we want to take advantage of ourselves. Now, how do, we, how do we answer this question? How do we know that nature will be uniform from a Christian worldview? There's a verse, I think it's 
think it's in Genesis. It's somewhere like early on in the Old Testament that God gives the promise that the crops will continue to grow and the sun will continue to rise. Yeah, there's there's plenty there's a number of passages of scripture that talk about nature being uniform and God, you know, God in his creation and his providence, you know, making things function in that way. Okay? So we covered those two, and we're going to continue on with the preconditions of intelligibility uh, today. What questions do you have about this? There's a specific example that was given in the book okay. that I did not make any sense of. Okay, yeah. If you find that, let's talk about it. One thing was like, since we have an ultimate authority, that being God, we have answers for a lot of this stuff. Like, what about like other like religions, mm-hmm. like like Mormonism, like Muslims and stuff? Like, obviously, we can't be right, but they can also be right at the same time. That's right. That's right. So, like, I was wondering how we can defend. Like, um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm too tired to think. But. No, I think a good question. I hope I hope to cover some of that stuff later if we have time. But I'll give you the the, the short answer now. Um, the issue with Mormonism, for example, what is the authority in Mormonism, or what are the authorities in Mormonism? Do you know? Well, this is important because remember, when it comes to worldviews, we want to find out what their ultimate authority is. So if we're going to deal with Mormons, for example, they hold to the King James Bible. Oh, okay. But also, as you probably know, the Book of Mormon, as well as the book, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, so they have a bunch of authoritative, like divine revelation, not just scripture, not just the Bible. Okay, and that's the error of all the cults and all the pseudo-Christian religions or the ones that kind of devolved out of Christianity is that they are internally inconsistent. Right? You're a Mormon. If you're debating with a Mormon, you can use the Bible because like, you can just debate the Bible straight because he would even claim the Bible as part of his authority. But the Bible is contradicted in the Book of Mormon in a number of ways. Our, obviously, our, our Christian doctrine is not the same as Mormon doctrine. And the reason for that is because they've added all this other stuff. So when it comes to AIP, the I is a big failure with Mormonism. Huge inconsistencies. Does that make sense? So you're pointing out this, the contradiction of their own, their self-contradiction of their own worldview. See that? I believe, if they believe the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and those two disagree, they have basically their God, so to speak, is self-contradictory. So it's inconsistent. Muslims, it's the same type of thing. They hold the parts of the Bible and the Quran. Inconsistencies. Jehovah's Witnesses only hold to the Bible, quote-unquote, but they hold to the Watchtower Society, which is their kind of authoritative interpretation of the Bible. So it's a theological debate, right? They deny that Jesus is God, so you go in Scripture and you argue for that. It's just a theological debate because they're not, they believe in, in one God, Jehovah's Witnesses do, one God, but they don't believe in the Trinity. 
So that's one area that you really need to argue with. Mormons don't believe in one God. They believe in an unknown, unknown millions of gods. Well, that's a huge difference with the Bible, isn't that? <laughs> right? So, you know, you have to know a little bit about, figure out as you're talking to them, but find out the inconsistencies. And in that sense, you're, you're, that's already good enough. They're theological debates, basically. But as we'll see, if their God is inconsistent, then their God can't account for knowledge either. If their God can contradict himself. We're going to cover the laws of logic next. And if you have a God that is illogical, then he can't account for the laws of logic. Because in truth, the Christian God, the laws of logic are, come from his way of thinking. But since, since I'm arguing that the Mormon God doesn't really exist, but let's just say the Mormon God um, is illogical, and he's not the source of the laws of logic, right? So they can't account for the preconditions of intelligibility either. You probably don't need to go there with Mormons. You probably can just stick with the, with the theological debate of what the Bible actually teaches um, about how many gods there are, who Jesus is, etc. You know, they believe that God was once a man and became God. Huge differences, gigantic differences. So, and then there are other religions that aren't based around Christianity at all, like Hinduism and stuff. If there's arbitrariness and inconsistency there as well. Um, for example, in Hinduism, there's no distinction between anything. Everything is one. Okay. In the Christian worldview, that's not the case. And it's especially because there's a distinction between the creator and the creature. But in Hinduism, there is no distinction between anything. So what is God? Everything. And everything is God. So can you have revelation from God or from the gods in a Hindu worldview? No. And the reason being is when I talk, it's the word of God. When the dog barks, it's the word of God. Because there's no distinction between me and God. And, or no distinction between me and the dog. Everything is God. So you can't have God revealing something as if he's distinct from the creation. In the Christian worldview, there is that distinction. God has knowledge that we don't have, and he reveals that. So we have to have a, a worldview that's going to even, even get close. And I'd say that it's not even close. But a worldview that's even on the right track at all has to have a revelation. But Hinduism can't. So the only worldviews that are even kind of like on the right track would be the ones that are kind of based around Christianity or, or are perversions of it. That includes Islam, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., those types of worldviews. Um, and then most of those end up coming down to theological debates. So who God is, what's the nature of salvation, those kind of central issues. But we'll hopefully at the end of the class we'll be able to run through some of those worldviews and deal with them apologetically. Does that answer the question? Does that make sense to you? That does make sense, yes. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. So the next precondition for knowledge is the laws of logic. Now, you should know a little bit about this, having done some logic and having us talk about it. You probably understand why laws of logic are necessary for knowledge, right? Because if the only way that you can um, like make an argument or reason 
is to use logic, right? So if logic doesn't exist, then you couldn't know anything. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of obvious, but that's kind of the point. Um, so the question is, what's the epistemological question then that we're asking about laws of logic? We're, we're, we're asking, for example, let's take an example of the law of non-contradiction. Remember that one? P and not P cannot be true at the same time in the same sense. The proposition and its negation can't be true at the same time in the same sense. So how do you know that the law of non-contradiction will always be true? Or how do you know the law of non-contradiction is true everywhere? Another, another question you can ask. See, do you remember the attributes of the laws of logic? They're universal, meaning what? Yeah, true everywhere. They're abstract. What's that mean? They're not physical. Yep. And they are invariant. What's that mean? Don't change. Don't change. So you ask questions based around that. How do you know that they're true everywhere? See, so think about that. How does, how does, let's take our atheist. How does he know the law of non-contradiction is true everywhere? Has he experienced everywhere? So he can't answer the question based on his own experience, right? How does he know? He can say, well, I've never experienced it not being true. Is that a good answer? Your limited experience where you've been some places, right? That's not, that's not good. Well, humans as, as a, a collective haven't experienced it as being untrue. Well, how do you know? Making claims that he really doesn't, can't back up, right? Or even this one, the, the law of non-contradiction being unchanging. How do you know that? How do you know that it won't be, um, it won't just be false? That, how do we know that contradictions will always be false? Like tomorrow. They just won't change. That, that law will just disappear and we won't have it as a law of thought anymore. You understand that question? How do you know that the law of non-contradiction will be true tomorrow? How might he answer that? He would probably like answer the same way as like the nature of like you know the uniformity of nature versus like we'll probably try and answer like hell is it's always been consistent up until now. Mm -hmm. Yesterday's tomorrow was always consistent. So today's tomorrow should be consistent. Right. And it has the same issue, right? A lot of non-contradiction will always be true because it always has been and is true and will be true. It just begs the question. So, and that's important. So think about this. If the law of non-contradiction can ever be false, then we can't know anything. For example, if I say I am in this room right now and at the same time I am not in this room, what do you know about my location? Nothing at all, right? If I say, um, water's chemical composition is H2O and water's chemical composition is not H2O. In the same sense, at the same time. What do you know about the chemical composition of water? Nothing, right? If contradictions are, can be true, you don't know anything. You see that? It's vitally important. Whatever you say, the thing is, if I say something, 
and the opposite of that is also true. It doesn't make any sense, right? You can, you, it does, it's hard to even wrap your head around because the law of non-contradiction is so ingrained and so basic. But you won't know, you couldn't know anything at all. Any proposition, if any proposition is true and its negation is true, then you know nothing. Right? So in an apologetic debate, right, it, it's, you're asking them, can you give a reason for belief in the law of non-contradiction, for example, that it will be true always? How do you know it will be true always? Because if it's not true always, knowledge is impossible. Right? Does that make sense? So you're asking the same type of epistemological question for all of these. How do you know? You see that? Questions about that? We're going to go through the biblical um, basis for these in a little while. I'm just going to go through the rest of these, and then we'll go through the biblical basis for all of them. So that's the challenge that we're giving for the laws of logic. How do you know that they will always be true or that they're true everywhere? Those types of questions. You can also challenge them, depending on their worldview. If somebody is a materialist, what's that mean? They only believe what? The material world exists. And you ask them, well, what are the laws of logic then? Are they material? Right? You believe in laws of logic, but they're not material, right? They're abstract. So you can challenge inconsistency there as well, depending on their worldview. All right, so laws of logic, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, let's do another precondition. This is kind of fun. The general reliability of memory. Okay, I'm not talking about perfect photographic memory. I'm talking about, can you know anything by recollection? Can you know anything by memory? Master question, how do you know what your name is? Well, my parents called me growing up. Well, how do you know what your parents called you growing up? Huh? Well, because that's, that's, that's how I remember my parents. Right, you remember that, right? There's, There's lots, lots of stuff, stuff that you know based upon memory, isn't it? Who are your parents? <laughs> you remember them, right? Right? Who your friends are, where you grew up, where you live now, where the grocery store is, which car you own, how to drive, <laughs> whatever. There's lots of stuff. In fact, if you can't know things by memory, then you, again, you can't know anything. Some, even stuff as basic as who you are. Right? I remember who I am. But the question is, can I rely on my memory at all to know things? See that? This is fun. Can you rely on your memory at all to know things? And how do you, so how do you know? I ask, how do you know um, that your memory is reliable so that you can know what your name is? And you can't just say, because I remember it. Why not? Right. It, it begs, begs the question, question, right? You're saying, how do I know my memory is reliable? Because I remember. Let me put it this way. I think Jason Lyle puts it this way. He says, okay, well, what if somebody says this? All right, good question. So, what I, so let me get back to you on that. How do I know my memory is reliable? So you come back a month later and you say, okay, have you figured it out? And he says, yeah. So what I did is I went and I took a memory test. 
to see how good my memory is. And I found out that, hey, I got 100% on the test. I have an excellent memory. So I took that test a couple weeks ago. Got a perfect score. Therefore, I can rely on my memory. Is there any issue with that? He's using his memory to recall the test. He took the test. So you ask, how do you know you took the test? Well, I remember I took it two years ago. Uh-oh, he begged the question again. How do you know you can rely on your memory at all? Because I remember the, see? It's a precondition for knowledge. We, you have, everybody relies on their memories to some degree. We're not saying it's perfect, but we're saying that we can know things through memory. But the question is, how can you know things through memory without just simply begging the question? Do you follow that one? See, all of these, they're so fundamental. But can you justify it in your worldview? How do you know that your memory is, can be relied upon at all for you to know things? And it's as basic as remembering who you are, who your family is, things like that. Now, somebody might answer this. Well, for example, how do I know that my, um, how do I know who my, who my mom is? You can say, well, you know, I remember my mom. I say, well, that, that kind of begs the question. You say, well, my brother says that this is my mom. So they appeal to somebody else's memory. What's the problem with that? Yeah, same questions. We're talking about the reliability of memory for everybody, not just for you as an individual, but anybody's memory is how is it reliable. So appealing to somebody else just moves the problem to somebody else, but the problem still stands. Okay? So we're asking them to give a justification for the, their um, belief in the general reliability of their memory. Okay, that makes sense? Okay, one more. The general reliability of our senses. What are our senses? Hearing, mm -hmm. touch, and smell, see. Mm hmm. And <laughs> taste. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's five senses, right? Five senses. How do we know that our senses are generally reliable? Again, we're not saying that they're a perfect test, but that we can, how do we know that we can know things through our senses? For example, how do you know that you're in this room right now? We were talking about this the other day. What? Because you can see that you're here. You can feel that you're here. Yeah. You can hear that you're here, right? So, but how do you know? All right, so for example, let's take this, this little thing, music stand. How do I know that this is here? Because it's holding up whatever you just put on. Okay, let's get a little more basic though. That's, yeah, but I can see it. I can touch it. I can even, when it's tapped, I can hear it. I could taste it, I won't, but I could, right? I could smell it. But the question is, how do you know that your senses are reliable? So if it's like, how do you know your senses are reliable? I say, well, look, I can see it. What's my problem? You're still begging the question again, right? How do I know that my sense of sight is reliable? Because I can see. Oh, okay, wow, great answer, right? Begs the question. That's the very thing we're asking. So, you know, for and here I gave this illustration before too, but it's, I think it's helpful. 
you know, we, we have, um, when our sense, sometimes we have optical illusions, right? We don't, we don't see things uh, as they really are, right? So you see the train track and you look down, you're on the train track and you look down in the distance and it seems that it converges, that it comes to a point. So, wow, okay, let me go. So you walk up there and you find out when you're up there, no, it's, they're actually still parallel. Okay, so when you're far away, it looks, your eyesight is saying, look, my eyesight was wrong. And how did you correct your eyesight? Got it. And then, then what do you do? You looked at the, so you used your eyesight to correct your eyesight. See that? The question is, how do you know which one was right? And so how, how do you know which is true? When you're close to the train track or when you're far away, you're still using your sense of sight. So you can't use your sense of sight as a, um, a test for whether you can rely upon your sense of sight. That's just, that begs the question, right? You have to, you have to raise the question, how do I know that I can rely on my senses at all to know anything? And again, that's very basic and fundamental for knowing anything, right? Because you wouldn't, how do I know that you all exist? By sense perception. Because I've seen you, I've heard you, you know, things like that. Likewise, for all you all, everybody, everything you've experienced has been, you know, in, in the physical world has been through senses. But how do you know you can trust your senses at all? Well, it's necessary for knowledge, and everybody does trust their senses generally. Again, we recognize, hey, we can be mistaken about some things, but we do trust that we can know, for example, that I'm in this room right now based upon my senses. Okay. But the unbeliever is going to just beg the question and say, well, I know that this is here because I can see that it's here. Well, how do you know you can trust your sense of sight? Say, well, look, I can see it. Well, that doesn't answer the question. I can touch it. Well, how do you know you can tr trust, trust your sense of touch? Well, because, I mean, look, I'm just doing it. Right? That begs the question. You follow that? Okay. So, let me, this is what Jason Lyle said about this one. He said, the presuppositional approach should be understood as worldview analysis, which we've talked about. You're analyzing the person's worldview. A worldview consists of a person's most basic beliefs about reality. These basic beliefs are called presuppositions because they are assumed to be true in advance of being tested. And here's giving, here's the, the basic reliability of sensory experience is a presupposition. We're talking about reliability of senses. People generally assume that what they see, hear, taste, touch, or smell really does have something to do with the actual universe, right? This is assumed to be true in advance of any sort of scientific testing. Here, this part is important. If a scientist decides to investigate the chemical composition of a rock, he must first assume that the rock really does exist on the basis that he can see it and touch it, right? He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna analyze this rock. Well, how do you know the rock exists? Well, because he can touch it, he can see it, right? He has presupposed that his senses are basically reliable as a necessary prerequisite to learning anything else about the rock but any sort of scientific analysis. See, sense, the reliability of the senses is necessary for us to know. So it's a precondition for knowledge, a precondition for intelligibility. We have to be able to rely on our senses in order for the world to be intelligible. That's true of all of these things, 
from ethics, uniformity of nature, laws of logic, reliability of memory, reliability of senses. All of those are necessary for knowledge, and every human being believes in them. Now, they might deny some of them sometimes, but they're inconsistent with that denial. Like the person who denies the laws of logic, but yet still engages in argumentation. Or the person who says that things are not right and wrong, but yet still acts as though what people are doing is wrong by being angry or being disappointed and things like that. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? Questions? Okay. We're going to take a break, and after that, we'll talk about the Bible's uh, accounting for all of the preconditions that we covered. Okay, so let's take a break, come back at uh, 9.50. Okay.